and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have two amazing guests to introduce to you now. Dr. Gary Fecky is an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Tasmania. He has a major interest in preventative medicine and encourages his patients to lose weight before undergoing surgery. He is an advocate of a low-carbohydrate, high-fat lifestyle for various health benefits, including the reversal of type 2 diabetes. Along with his wife, Belinda, Gary has also opened Nutrition for Life, Diabetes and Health Research Center, which provides nutritional care around Tasmania and Australia. His wife, Belinda, took the initiative researching the biohistory of religion and influences of nutrition and dietary guidelines in order to better understand why her husband was targeted for using a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet by the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency and the Tasmanian Health Service. Her research revealed a massive influence of seven-day Adventism and cereal companies' impact on creating dietary guidelines. Dr. Gary Fecky and Belinda Fecky, what an absolute honor it is to welcome both of you to Boundless Body Radio. Great to catch up. It's such very, an honor. Very, very good to be here. Such an honor to have both of you. I followed both of you for a very long time. We share um, a mutual friend in Vinny Tortorich, uh, who is, um, he's been in the low carbohydrate space for a long time. He's a filmmaker, which you should know because you've been in his movie. And <laughs> there is, in his very first documentary, Fat, a documentary, there's an interview with you where you're talking about amputations. And then all of a sudden, really quickly, there is a scene of a diabetic amputation. And it comes on so fast, you almost can't like avoid it, which is probably good because I don't know that I would have like gone seeking that. But oh my goodness, you cannot unsee that once you see what that looks like. Did, did you ever get used to doing that? No, no. It's, that, it, it's a sickening feeling amputating limbs. That's it. I mean, and particularly in diabetes, which is an unnecessary operation. You know, it, it's years in the making by the, you know, of, of poor dietary control, poor by, and I'll, I'll say poor dietary control rather than poor medical control because I don't think you need all the drugs that we're throwing at patients with diabetes. And these patients, these, well, not sorry, not patients, they're people. You actually get to know them. Not, it's not a one-off visit when you come along. They start with a little ulcer, then the ulcer gets worse and then it becomes infected and you're trying to treat that. And then you might be trimming a bit of a toe and then you're taking off the next toe and then the next one after that and a bit of the foot and then you know, ultimately for too many, um, then, uh, you, you know, you're taking off a limb. And that noise, and it is a thud, into a stainless steel bucket, you can't get can't get used to that. Oh. that and, and that and, and that was really um, becoming a, a weekly practice for me, just to be trimming bits of toes and feet. Not once a week, but you know, I, I regularly have a couple of patients. And my, my Friday clinics at the hospital ended up being called Fetke's effed uh, up. Fetke's uh, fructose free effed up fungating foot folly Fridays. There's a lot of F's there. But essentially, you'd come along into the clinic and it, 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 it literally a, a smell of rotting flesh. Now, I know that sounds disgusting, but when you keep seeing that week in and week out, and because no one else wants to take on these patients, it, it, it's not a, not a happy experience because you're in a, a no win situation. And then when we started. That, that, that I had those patients in hospital and they were be, being given ice cream as part of the hospital dietary guidelines. For then, diabetes. For diabetes. I went, hang on, whoa, it, it's, it's, 
that was a light bulb moment for me. And I said, will you stop giving it to them? I said, no, that's the hospital guidelines. That's the national food guidelines for people in hospital. And I've, I've been challenged on that, but I've also presented to the national hospital <laughs> food guide, food industry at their national meeting. And I said, I put up their guidelines. They said, that's not it. And I said, well, actually, this is what your guidelines are. I gave them a big hashtag mm. fail. I was then invited to come back and speak two years later. They couldn't cope with me 12 months <laughs> later. But essentially when you're pointing out such a flawed process, but anyway, literally my patients in hospital, if I reduced their sugar and carbs and reduced their, their and increased their protein, like literally coming into hospital, stop eating sugar, stop eating, you know, processed carbs and we did and I'd write on the medication chart two pieces of cheese and two eggs I had to prescribe eggs to my patient because they weren't available and so literally just by doing that reducing sugar giving them a little bit of protein we're able to save toes and feet that's incredible so imagine what you then do extrapolate that across the wider population and you start doing that on a at a guideline basis because most people health practitioners in the Western world don't want to step outside the guidelines and the guidelines are wrong and they're actually causing harm and that's so if the guidelines are wrong and we believe they're wrong and in fact I think they're energy dense nutrient poor guidelines then you've got to say why aren't they changing why aren't why isn't why aren't the guidelines following the science and it's because there are vested interests in this in place since 1910, And that's where Belinda's work's just become so so critical because myself, you know, others in this space have been going blue in the face talking about science, the results, the, pa- the patient benefits, and yet literally the system doesn't want to know about it you know, or, or is just starting to hear about it. Oh, that was, sorry. They've been hearing about it, yeah. but they've been ignoring us. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. That's stunning. I, you, you have been featured prominently, both of you, in this wonderful book, The Great Plant-Based Con by Jane Buxton. And she gives you, Belinda, all of the credit in an entire chapter for that research, which is quite extensive. And when you go back and look at the story of what happened in both of your lives over the last like, 10, 12 years... There's it's bananas in so many different ways. No, we, we can't talk about bananas. Because, <laughs> oh no, the bananas are bad. Okay, oh, oh. <laughs> too too high in fructose. <laughs> it, it's crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy what you guys have been through. And so let's let's kind of dive in there. You guys have been married for forty years, and Gary is is Almost you know next year. <laughs> next year, awesome. That's great. Congratulations. Um, you, you know you're you're learning. You're looking around and learning that that. People are getting the wrong food in hospitals. They're getting the wrong food recommended to them by the guidelines. Can you guide us along kind of what happened in your personal story? Well, the the guidelines are what determines what food is served in hospitals, nursing homes, schools, what children are educated in, as well as what's served to the the defence forces and the prison. So it's an enormous spread of influence. And these government bodies have sort of got to follow suit. And it's education for all health professionals. And it's the, as Linda said, education for for all health Mm. professionals. And I say what it is, it's generational education. Mm. Because we we do and we believe what our teachers taught us and we believe and they believe what their teachers taught them. And if it's in your textbooks 
And those textbooks, as it turns out, have been written by the food and pharmaceutical industry since 1910 and 1917. That's just continued to flow on because that was in the textbooks. But when you realise the textbooks way back were actually written by those who were conflicted by religious ideology and this belief that... um, that it was uh, this was the best way to go, when in fact it was literally a religious belief, you know, based on the on the visions of a prophetess, and then that whole concept, uh, which is scary, that the whole food pyramid, that that cereal and grain base, is really based on the concept of trying to stop us to masturbate, and I know that's a big leap, but when you go back, <clears throat> that's what happened. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church are the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Church. They've been positioning themselves into our health education for over 100 years. They've been writing the textbooks for the Western civilization, or Western you know, communities for, again, 100 years. And, and here we are today with an obesity epidemic, metabolic health completely out of control. You know, data out of the US only a few weeks ago, 93% of the US population are metabolically unwell. Yeah, and that's a, no that's a 2018. <clears throat> that's still pre-pandemic. That's scary. Yes, and, and, and that's up from 88% right. only a couple of years before. Right. So it, it is just, and it's no different here. I mean, we might be marginally better, but I don't think so if you really start you know, tunneling down. So those guidelines, I, I call our processed food experiment is the biggest social experiment of the last 100 years, and it's failing. And so I, I better let Belinda talk a bit because this is her, her wisdom and, and, and people sh- really have to understand. And, and Belinda's contacted every day from people around the world to find out, you know, what, what's the networking going on. I don't think anyone should enter a debate until Belinda's actually done the research as to who she's deba- who they're debating against. I've just been, you know, speaking in a couple of meetings, and it's just really, really interesting to know where the other speakers' conflicts of interest are, particularly if they don't declare them. Wow, which is a big thing in Australia, right? You, it's a lot <laughs> harder to find out conflicts of interest than it is even in America. That that was surprising. I learned that from you guys. Yeah, I think. The reason I got into all of this was because the cereal industry targeted Gary for talking about sugar. I looked at who was the expert witness that was brought in because Gary was investigated for four and a half years or investigated, sorry, for two and a half years and it took us another two years to get that determination overturned or just completely thrown out. And I just kept watching Gary and other low-carb advocates uh, starting to join up with this group, Low Carb Down Under, and create a bit of momentum and I was watching them talk the science until they were blue in the face. And I thought, there's an issue here. The public are listening. Some health professionals are listening. But the rule keepers of the guidelines, which is what I, you know, the biased guidelines, I don't believe it was making any impact. And I thought, well, this makes no sense. So I just looked. Firstly, I looked at who was the expert witness that was brought into Gary's case by the APRA Medical Board. And I thought... I had a bit of cognitive dissonance and I thought he must work for the sugar industry because why on earth is Gary, an orthopedic surgeon with a catchment area of about 120,000, we're one step away from Antarctica, like we're so far removed from the world, what sort of impact is he having? So it must be sugar. 
And the more research and the more research I did into this man, I uncovered the fact he was actually working for the cereal industry. So I thought, oh, okay, hadn't thought cereal, but of course, I uncovered some documents from this group called the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum. And they were four specific um, cereal industries here in Australia, but a couple of them are worldwide, of course. So it was Kellogg's, Nestle, Sanitarium and Freedom Foods. And these groups got this group got together each month to discuss strategies. Give me three months, sorry. To discuss strategies around how to improve sales, obviously. And one particular set of documents were talking about the fact that their cereal sales were being harmed by advocates of low carb. And <clears throat> so I thought, all right. So cereal sales were down. <clears throat> yeah, cereal That's what sales they were down. Cereal sales were down and the <clears throat> concepts of low carb were to blame. Yes. And these and Gary was the only medical doctor at that time listed among fourteen names. Only seven. Seven. Yeah, seven. Congratulations! Congratulations! Well, I mean, we we sort of went congratulations at one moment, and then we went oh swear word four letters because this is multi billion dollar industries international, um, who have decided that we that I'm for targeting. You know, it says that's. That that's it, um, and if we were in other countries around the world, we might have been in feeling under greater threat. Um, some of my talks have been translated into different languages, and I won't identify those people. But people ask me, they contact us, can I trans change this into this language? And I said, fine. He said, but I need to do it anonymously because in our country, if I publish this, I might might be knocked off. Literally. Mm-hmm. And they're and brave young people, and it's, it's easy for me to be brave from mm-hmm. another country, but they're brave people. So actually they felt so strongly that their country needed to hear that message that they trans started translating it. And, it, I mean, I think that's fabulous. It's been able to be translated. But I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm not amazed. It's not a conspiracy if it turns out to be true. That's right. And, and therefore there are major players here which have got huge amounts of money behind them and who also have this huge amount of ideological belief that that's what they're doing, they're doing the right thing. And that reach of the Adventist church into our dietary guidelines, you know, flowed right through to the recent review of the American dietary guidelines and and the people who are looking at the meat section or what they call the fat section, there were significant conflicts with SDA. But then we also have those people at a very senior level within the World Health Organization, the United Nations. Here they are within Australia. And, you know, and it's hard work for Belinda to find out where they are. But one of the good things is the Sunshine Act you have got in the US because if they publish anything internationally, they have to declare it. We don't have a Sunshine Act. We don't have a Sunshine Act here in Australia. Interesting. Wow. And we don't we don't have a university here where they train medical students owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So again, I've been able to connect a lot of my research through the fact that in America you have a lot of educational facilities um, training doctors, nurses, dietitians um, owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I just, yeah, when I found this group of serial advocates targeting Gary, I... I often say the mama bear came out and I thought, how am I going to, how am I going to protect him? 
how am I going to give him back his voice? I'm afraid, Joel. Yeah. After two (laughs) years, years, the medical board here actually silenced Gary. The determination was that his silencing from talking about nutrition to his patients, to the wider community, was lifelong, non-appellable in a court of law. And we just went, this is ridiculous. Even if it was shown to be best practice. Yeah, even if it was shown to be best practice. Even if it was shown to be best practice into the future, which it is, I'm still not allowed. I was still not allowed to talk about it. And, and so, if you think this that's stupid, I mean, I, I help people out with APRA cases. Every, I mean, I'm just so frustrated with someone's case last night. I think it's so unfair what's happening to her. But it's just it's it, it's it's it's, pretty. it's no, it's, not, it's beyond petty. It's, it's da- I reckon they're dangerous because they're causing harm by restricting free speech. Wow. Um, and. <clears throat> I suppose we should just come back to you, to your listeners to say, oh, why are we going on about the Adventist Church? But they effectively started the cereal industry of the Western world, the soy industry of the Western world, and the start of the alternate meat industry with huge links and ties to the startup of the stevia industry. So, And, again, massive footprint at an educational level around the world and particularly in the US and developing developing countries, and particularly the, the Blue Pacific, Polynesia, Melanesia, that, that sort of area there, uh, where they're actually try, trying to bring in the, the chip program, the, go back to more cereals and grains, which need to be imported to the populations of the world that have got the highest rates of obesity <clears throat> and diabetes. So the top 10 obese countries in the world come from the Blue Pacific, Polynesia. Everyone says, oh, my country is more obese than the other. I always laugh about that. You know. <clears throat> but, in fact, when you look at the figures, it's the top 10 obese countries in the world are the Polynesian ones and are nine of the top 10 for diabetes. And the only one that sneaks in at 10 is, um, is I think it's Kuwait because they don't have alcohol, so they drink lots of soft drink. Ah, wow. No, we, we think we might be fat and sick in Australia, but we look at the, those Indigenous populations. Mm. And what's happening is this, this um, pilgrimage of, uh, of, the, of righteousness from religious groups, but particularly the SDAs, wants to then take these people away from their traditional diets and move them towards a highly processed food diet. And it's, it can only have one... One, one effect, and it is. It's getting fatter, sicker, more obesity, more diabetes. Wow. And, and when, you look, when you look into those areas and start looking where the influence is, right through to a political level, <clears throat> and it's what half a dozen of the presidents and prime ministers of Polynesian countries are now Seventh-day Adventists. It's... You go, whoa, okay, so that, and we're not talking about... I discovered that. That's Belinda's, Belinda's work. <laughs> it's the Gary show. <laughs> it's, I, I, I acknowledge that every day I come home, Belinda says, you wouldn't believe what I found out this time. Yeah? Seriously. <laughs> I can think back on maybe three or four different events on my own, like, nutritional journey where I, I encounter something that's so 
bizarre. It, it doesn't even like make sense. Like you read one of Gary, uh, you know, Gary Taubes or Nina Teichel's books, and it's like everything you've been told about nutrition is wrong, and it blows your mind. And then you learn um, that Sean Baker is off eating ribeye steaks and nothing else, and not eating vegetables, and he's crushing it. And then maybe you learn from Sally Norton that oxalates in plants. The, all of the mm. superfoods that you think are amazing for you, all the sweet potatoes and the chard and the spinach and the almonds could be possibly bad for you. That just like blew my mind at the time. And this is absolutely one of those stories. So Belinda, tell us how <laughs> in the world did the Seventh-day Adventist church, you know, start, I believe it was started by Ellen White. She was the one that was having the visions at least. Can you tell yes. us how, how that whole thing started and how that propagated into today where they still <clears throat> are influencing our nutritional guidelines on a massive scale that nobody realizes besides you? <laughs> Oh, it's not just me. Um, Fred Leroy and um, James Connolly, the three of us are sort of looking into this religious space and then that impact and where it's flowing. Um, Frederick Leroy goes right off into a whole lot of other information as well. So, but I think people don't, people have underestimated this um, religious ideology that has impacted our dietary guidelines and the belief. So in 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was officially incorporated, but it was a break-off group from the Millerites back in 1844, the great disappointment when Jesus didn't return to earth. And there was a guy called Hiram Edson the ne very next day after, after Jesus didn't return, and he had a vision in a cornfield that Jesus was moving from his holy place to his most holy place, and then he was starting to write the books of um, whether we were good or we were bad. He was, he, was, he was there creating this new space. So Ellen G. White, a few months later, had a very similar vision back in 1844, and as time went on, she and a group of very, very young Adventists, which is what they call themselves, and so Ellen was 16 or 17 at the time. James White, her husband-to-be, was 23. He was the oldest of the young group. But we're talking about people who are 15 10, 13, you know, these young people were organising this religious belief through these visions that Ellen was getting about the next, the next life. And she went on to talk about the fact that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which they were part of, were the spiritual children of Israel. And if the original children, spirit, the original children of Israel had done the commandments that Jesus had asked, Jesus would have come back and the world would have finished. We would have all been up in heaven. So she truly started to take it on herself that she and this group of people were the ones that were going to save everybody and take this message further. And she was told in 1863 to use this health reform visions that she was getting about the importance of the Garden of Eden diet, cereals, oh, sorry, not cereals, no. fruit, nuts and seeds, so that not, was the original. Not, fruit, nuts <clears throat> and seeds, not even vegetables. Not even vegetables. So again. the exclusion of animal meats, and you can talk about that, but not even vegetables. So the whole original Garden of Eden diet was fruits, nuts, and seeds. Well, that's yes. interesting too because I wonder back in the time how many vegetables were even around in the way that we recognize vegetables in the grocery store today. There may have been a, a complete <clears throat> difference in availability. Exactly. And then she went on to have a couple more. Within a, a year, I think she was being told by God that meat was carcinogenous. Was it, it was meat, dangerous meat. that 
sorry, and meat in 1863 when she was told, it was it animalized people. It caused um, people to masturbate and self-vice, which was the term they used back then, and it became about polluting people. So this concept was very, very strongly brought into the church. Interestingly, she didn't actually give up meat until she was in the 1890s when she came out to Australia to sanitarium apparently. So despite the fact that she's propagating this messaging that this is what um, spiritual people should be eating and certainly the Seventh-day Adventist Church were advocating those things, she did talk about eggs and meat, uh, eggs and milk and butter as something that would we would eventually get rid of, but that's why John Harvey Kellogg was so intent on creating these alternative foods to those things because they couldn't really get rid of eggs, milk and butter because of the importance of vitamin B12 and other essential um, vitamins and minerals that were in these things and essential protein. So they had to work out a way to create foods that would take that place. And when she came to Australia, she set up sanitarium here which was based on John Harvey Kellogg's model at the Seventh-day Adventist Church's Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan. But this time she wanted the church to own it. So Battle Creek, uh, Kellogg's was never owned by the church. It was founded and funded by Seventh-day Adventists and the church helped fund, but they actually owned sanitarium here in Australia. And this is where the, um, the expert witness that was um, brought into the APRA Medical Board's case, he was working for sanitarium. Wow. Wow. I suppose that's how I started to connect the dots as to the influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was purely because of this expert witness and it made me start to look at sanitarium. And even though I was vaguely aware growing up that it was owned by a church, you do and you don't. And I, I guess a lot of people in America would be very similar. You are aware that there's universities and that there's different things owned by the church, but are you aware of how influential those places are in educating people about the demonization of animal proteins and fats. And so I'd gone into it looking for sugar, found low carb, but had not expected that Gary wasn't just in trouble for talking about cereals and sugar and reducing those. He was in, I reckon, just as much trouble for talking about animal proteins and fats, the health benefits of those. And so that just blew my mind. So go, go back in time because that whole concept of meat causes cancer probably wasn't cancer per se. It was probably cancer of the soul. Yeah. That's a, so that whole early belief of meat causes yes. cancer, meat causes violence, meat causes masturbation is actually all what the spiritual, moral, defilement. Yeah. And, and so, mm. but tell the link between how, why John Harvey Kellogg then became obsessed with trying to sort that out. Yeah, well, he was, he was 12 years old when he went to work for the Seventh-day Adventist Church's First, well, founding farm, family, um, James and Ellen <clears throat> White, and he was in charge of typesetting for them. That's how he was going to earn some money because his father was such a devout Seventh-day Adventist that he believed the end of the world was so soon that he decided his children didn't need educating. Well, I learned that today from listening to some of your material. I had no idea. That, that right there tells you how strong their beliefs were. Wow. How strong their beliefs were that the world was going to end if they could just let enough people know. And so John Harvey Kellogg was 12. And if you look at a 12-year-old, how impressionable are 12-year-olds in their environment, in what they're learning? Like they're just drinking it all up. And I think 
that must have been an incredible time for him to be immersed in that area for four years. But he, he was typesetting mm. her first book. Yeah. <laughs> that. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah, so typesetting her first book, which was a solemn appeal to mothers. And this book spoke only of deterring your children from masturbating. So in every sort of way, it was everything from, you know, put them on a hard floor. Uh, they, she and John Harvey Kellogg actually worked out how to create genital cages to stop children touching themselves. Like it, it went further and further. Oh but goodness. meat, do not put meat on the table of your child because this will stimulate them to have self-vice. And so she also put into this book all the terrible things that were going to happen to children should they eat meat and masturbate. And so we've all heard of masturbation causes loss of vision. I think it still sort of perpetuates (laughs) vaguely around life even now. I've heard that when I was growing up. So (laughs) that's sitting there, but she talked about that it would decay heads and it was as if you'd put a pistol to your own chest and killed yourself. He was 12 to 16 listening to this messaging of how terrible meat was morally, spiritually, and physically. He was immersed in that. And I often say, is it any wonder that when he became a medical doctor, which James and Ellen White actually paid for him to study medicine and become the superintendent Mm -hmm. of the Western Health Reform Institute, and which he then changed the name to Battle Creek Sanitarium. So he became the head of that. Is it any wonder though that he was so intent on creating these alternates to meat, milk, and eggs and butter. You know, this was his lifelong quest yeah. to save people. Yeah, he, he was he was brilliant. Though. He was a very smart man. I mean, he was able to start the the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which has become the model for mm. every major hospital in the Western world. He's the first whole- person to wear white as a doctor. Wow, I didn't know that. Interesting. <laughs> He so, all white, so like that, that, shoes that the whole way. Multi-level uh, buildings where you bring all, all the services together yes. into the one environment, that is the modern hospital setting. John mm-hmm. Harvey Kellogg, let's, okay, he, he, he's clearly misguided, but he was brilliant. He was able to, you know, drag together people and the, the, the great names of that era used to come to Battle Creek Sanitarium for cleansing and, and, and their, their washouts and literally their washouts. Yeah. <laughs> Before that, the hospitals tended to just have people who were very, very sick, derelict, and if you, if you worked in a hospital, you were at great risk of actually catching a disease and, sure. and dying yourself. Sure. You know, that's where Florence Nightingale was coming in and trying to change conditions in hospitals. So they started the opposite way. They started as a health and wellness retreat with um you know all the water treatments that he did and enemas he was just passionate about getting everything out of the colon so i think this is where you know this bland food and this high fiber diets and everything else came from was this you just didn't want anything in there that might irritate and stimulate anything down below so he was a massive fan of colonic enemas but he did change the concept of the hospital as it grew and grew, because they ended up having 1,200 people were able to attend those hosp- that hospital wow. at one time. Wow, wow. Which was, as Gary said, unheard of. And the concept that doctors had to wear white and then the uniforms for the nurses became very much a part of American hospital 
procedures. So interesting. So yeah, so he invents cornflakes as like this really bland food as the alternative for the meat yes. and the eggs that will boost your testosterone. For how um I not would, boost your testosterone, dampen it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and and for how scary Ellen White's writings were on certain things, I think he took it a step further. Right? Some of his writings on masturbation itself are are really insane. Like he was in favor of circumcision for adults without painkillers and not yes. just male, not just male, male and female. And you read some of the ways that he would talk about people who did it. it it's, it's like a little scary. You're supposed to be cast down to the seventh hell of fire and brimstone or whatever. It, it, it's it's, it's kind of scary. <clears throat> I had a great chat with James Connolly. Just one sec. I had a great chance with James Connolly last week and he was uh, he sort of did a bit of a light bulb moment for me where they were looking at people who were in, in, in insane asylums and these people were locked up with nothing else to do and they found that they were masturbating. So it was they looked at them and said, well, they're masturbating, that's called the, caused their insanity wow. and that's why they're losing and making themselves so bad. So if you think back to those days, I went, of course, that starts to make a little bit of sense as to why they thought these that caused insanity, whereas wow. potentially those people were locked up and had nothing else to do. Wow. That's <clears throat> so. crazy. We, we're going to host James here in a few <clears throat> weeks, so I'll be sure to ask him about that for sure. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a really, really light bulb moment for me with all of the research that I've done. I went, oh, of course, that wow. sort of... Wow. Makes some sense there. Crazy. Okay, so I can think about, okay, way back then, that's in the 1800s, you know, coming into the 1900s. I, I'm here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was raised Mormon, so I'm no stranger to prophets in the 1800s having wacky visions and, and you know, things that, you know, 14 years old, Joseph Smith had his visions and starts his church and everything else. And, you know, having visions of what people should eat. There's a really famous thing in Mormon literature called uh, the Word of Wisdom, which tells Mormons they shouldn't drink, they shouldn't do drugs, they shouldn't drink. Uh, drink coffee, um, you know, what kinds of foods they should eat. Anyway, so we can think about that and we can think, okay, that was a long time ago. Surely, surely those things can be left in the past. They don't affect <clears throat> us now. You know, maybe they have those one or two <clears throat> universities or whatever. I can think of Loma Linda. I can't name any other institution that's owned by them, yet there are thousands and they get into the guidelines and have been in the guidelines. Can, can you explain like how, how it was that their influence way back then still impacts us in a way that's far greater than most people imagine today? Well, they, they're they, they, this they, is, they, this they, is they, their commission. They've been commissioned by God. Commissioned. And, so, and so therefore they have been, they, they don't go to war. They don't take up arms which is quite nice because if you're going to take them on, we're the, probably the one religion which is least likely to come along and kill you. <laughs> That's good. <clears throat> we Cri hope. Christianity doesn't have a good history when it comes to that. So, <laughs> No, no, I know. So we, we, we do respect them for that belief. <clears throat> we encourage that one. But then um, the, the medical uh, evangelism is the right arm of the church. So they have been working and putting their people and supporting them up the tree for decades. You know, the, their, their business model for getting this across has been in action for 100 years, and more than 100 using years. And medical evangelism <clears throat> and that health reform <clears throat> message. So, that, you know, they, they, they were able to move vegetarianism as an acceptable form into the guidelines, but when you actually looked at the people in the US one and the Australian one, when they had those position papers, they were all virtually Seventh-day Adventist members. 
bar one from the food industry. You've got to d- drill down to what Melinda drilled down for that. And so they've <clears throat> they keep positioning themselves generation upon generation. And then so therefore they've got this political model which has been very effective and they've been able to move into the guidelines. But they've also got a business model which has been coming along beside that. Mm. And here in Australia they don't pay taxes. So all of their profit <clears throat> literally goes Not the into people, <clears throat> the commercial church. The commercial church literally goes into continuing this health and wellbeing message. The sanitarium here in Australia are the health and wellbeing company. It's registered. And they, you know, they're one of Australia's most trusted companies because they tell us that they are. <laughs> and, and if you keep repeating this message. <laughs> you believe it. People, if you keep hearing it, like it's in Reader's Digest, it's in the, it just keeps coming at you. <clears throat> We're the health and wellbeing company. It comes across all the time. Yeah, they were the ones that wrote the algorithm here in Australia for the health star rating which actually surprisingly supports their processed food so that therefore they get four to five stars for their highly processed food and uh, full-fat yoghurt gets one. That's because they <laughs> demonised animal protein and fat. And so, when, but, you know, in the, in the supermarkets when you go there, they've got the health star rating on the food and the health star rating supports their product. So that's what they'll advertise and gets four stars. Those ones that you know, full-fat doesn't actually have a health star rating on it because... They get ba- get bagged out by this industry. They it, and and it's continued on to the education. So therefore, then you get the medical students being taught it. You get the nutrition students, the dietitian students, and they just keep believing this. We've actually gotten hold of the te- well, sorry, used and looked at the textbooks that the dietitians here in Australia learn from currently. Yeah, and they. It, it's, it doesn't actually even refer to meat in it. It does, it, it does with meat. There's one reference with meat in a table and then two references to mad cow disease. And they <laughs> didn't even realise because the education has become so siloed into little areas that they hadn't seen or realised that they were being educated about the demonisation of animal proteins and fats uh, subconsciously. It's, in, it's really interesting. And so when I looked at this man, Mark Walquist, and what he was actually doing, the expert witness for APRA, um, he was part of the IUNS, which is the International Union of Nutrition Science. He was the president from 2001 to 2005, and at the end of his presidency, he organised for a meeting in Gissen um, in Germany, and they had this meeting where they determined, and I'm saying they, and it included Esther Vorster, who was the nemesis in Tim Noakes's case, Right. And it included Joan Sabat, who was part of the US 2020 Dietary Guidelines Committee as a devout Adventist with the, the same belief. So we've got three people, actually many, many people, but these three that are very clear in my mind, creating a document and signing a declaration there that they were going to include planetary health into dietetic education. And by putting planetary health, the concept, that was the way then they could bring into dietetics, and that was early 2000s. That was the way they could really substantially demonise animal proteins and fats in the dietetic education. If we go back to the 1960s when the Adventist health studies were started, a lot of people heard about the Adventist health studies. They, they keep repeating them, but they effectively they keep reciting themselves as being proof 
that a vegan vegetarian lifestyle is actually most beneficial. If you then go, if you go back five to ten years before that, Harry China Miller was a doctor who worked, did a lot of uh, uh, reform work, did a lot of work in China, but also set up a whole lot of soy industries in China, <clears throat> and then brought that whole soy product to the US. He came back to the US and set up research laboratories to prove the visions of Ellen G. White. Not disprove it. Not to disprove it. <laughs> Science is all about disproving your hypothesis. You know, it, here's your hypothesis. Let's try and prove it incorrect. Whereas he came back and set it up to prove that visions were correct and flowing on from that were the Adventist health studies, which were done to prove something, not to disprove it. And then they keep reciting it. Each of the Adventist health studies has been recited over 400 times by themselves. So if you look up citations, it's incredibly well cited and therefore because it's repeated over and over and over and over, you know, I've, I've looked at the, you know, the Mormons actually have a, a greater longevity in the US than the Adventists do. That's right. You know, if you look at, you know, they, and so do the Ashkenazi uh, Jews. It's there, the data is there, but you don't hear about the Mormons and the Jews outliving everyone else. All you hear about as Adventists at Loma Linda, as part of Blue Zones, which is, again, blue just zones. made That's up. Another <laughs> Beware point. the Blue Zones, can I just say. Beware the Blue Zones. I, I uncovered um, last year there was the 89th US Congress of Mayors, and at that Congress 1,400 mayors have just signed and passed as official policy the adoption of the Blue Zones, and that's really scary in America. And someone said to me recently, why do you know so much about America? But I can't help myself. It's easy, easier to find it there than it is here. So the concept of the Blue Zones, the Blue Zones, sorry, project, the branding of the Blue Zones was bought by Adventist Health in 2020. It's, and it's, now you've just had 1,400 mayors <laughs> sign up to right. say, yes, we're going to do this. Right. And when you look at their graphic about what you eat, it's called a plant slant diet 95 to 100% plants, that's what they believe. The Blue Zones ate, but the demographers didn't say that. It was Dan Butner in 2005 who found Loma Linda as a Blue Zone a journalist, and he's, he and the couple of demographers branded this because you couldn't create a pill for longevity. Fountain of Youth, they've been looking at forever, could not find a pill to create that. So... They worked on creating a concept that they believe crossed all of the boundaries or picked the best of each of these different areas, but they took the, they took the diet from Loma Linda. And that was the thing that they said, yes, this is what we need to pull in, which does not agree with well, the <coughs> Sardinia and um, Okinawa. Right. Where they had those other, <laughs> the original, sorry, the original blue zone areas. All eight lard. All eight lard, <laughs> all eight animal proteins and fats. But, in fact, the original one wasn't actually, that wasn't a study of diet. It was a study no. of culture. Sure. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And it had nothing to do with diet. And then it became this concept of, hang on, this is maybe a sellable product. Mm. And then they literally came along and then Loma Linda was included because you needed to sell books in the US. In the US, that's right. They needed to have an American one, Dan Woodner. You needed, you can't, you're not ah. going to make lots of book sales from talking about <laughs> Sardinia and, and um, Okinawa. 
Okinawa. Yeah. So therefore, therefore they needed to entrench a U.S. community. Did not know that. And and then so Loma Linda came into that, and then they said, okay, because Loma Linda's now in it. Okay, what's that? That's it. Well, that's theoretically the Garden of Eden diet, which, as we've just talked about, completely unsustainable, eating fruits, nuts, and seeds. It's not even vegan, vegetarian. It's just it's just so literally off the planet. And as it turns out, the definition of vegan. According in the to in the Adventist <laughs> Health Study, is that you don't eat meat more than once a month, and vegetarian not more than once a week. So, well, hang on, this isn't vegan. This isn't vegetarian. This isn't that traditional Eastern vegetarian. This is Western marketing. What I call marketing based science. You've heard of evidence based science, <laughs> yeah. and you've got called um, eminence based science, which is what a lot of what we're up against. Which people, you know, professor so, said this, so therefore that's the way it stays. I've got this other term called marketing-based science, and this is just all marketing-based science, and it's literally just made up. But if you control the message and you control the advertising and you have a message of fear, so, you know, meat causes cancer, meat Mm -hmm. meat causes masturbation, meat causes violence, meat causes cancer, meat causes heart disease, which we moved to, now meat causes planetary decline. That's right. Climate change. It's, Mm -hmm. It's literally just made up. But if you keep having this message of fear and it's going to be this, you know, terrible abomination for all of society now because they didn't win on meat causes Mm. violence, masturbation, cancer or Mm. even heart disease. So now meat causes climate change is the latest tact. And when you just track it all back, it's just people believe this stuff because you keep hearing it. And the concern is that vegan (laughs) definition might well work for people who are Seventh-day Adventists. It's like to have meat once a month. Right. It may be enough to sustain their health. That's right. But the general public doesn't hear that. They don't know. They hear vegan and they go, that's no animal proteins and no animal fats. And so I think this is also something we need to really highlight and question is that that's not the public's perception of a definition. Right. That's right. That is such a good point for somebody that's unfamiliar with the blue zones. You know, and again, I'm glad you brought up the kind of original idea of the study. We notice a few places that have more um, octogenarians. So is that right? Did I say that right? Yes. Um, people yes. that live to be, a cent- excuse me, centenarians. We see more centenarians. Centenarians, I guess. but a lot of them actually didn't have high centenarians. Ah, so yes. it's 80 or more. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm still right. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, so we notice these places. People seem to live longer. Let, well, great. Let's go check them out. Let's see what they're doing. So diet mm-hmm. might be part of it. Uh, it might be that they are really active and healthy. Maybe their community yes. is a big part of it. There's so many confounding variables, just like everything else in epidemiology. You can only look at an area, make some associations, but you can't prove causation. And this gets brought up all the time. I get questions about the blue zones all the time. And the number of inconsistencies, when you start to go over to, you know, the, the journalists who report about it, Loma Linda <clears throat> is, is far less populated than some of these other areas. I want to say it's like 23,000 people are even there. There's questions about other places on the planet where people live far longer, like indigenous tribes. People brought up Iceland. Why wasn't Iceland included? They eat tons of animal products and they live very long, healthy lives. It's absolutely ridiculous to say that it's like vegetables and fruits that are what is keeping these people alive. (laughs) It's not even true. The other areas are geographically isolated. Ah. They're removed from Western food. Loma Linda's removed from Western food because they make all their food. Gary and I went into the supermarket 
it is canned, packaged. There, there is a small area of fresh food, but absolute buckets. Well, no, it would have been most <laughs> of it imported fresh food. Imported fresh, and then they had these buckets and massive containers of all of the alternative meats, milks, and um, cereals. It was just mind blowing how much they had there, and I think. The, the idea with the other blue zone areas is they looked at birth certificates and they looked at you know, people that were <coughs> entrenched in those areas at, in Loma Linda, especially it, was, it wasn't even discovered until 1910 by Ellen G. White, and then they built the university and the hospital and things there. So people weren't necessarily born there as Seventh-day Adventists. And ah. um, the Life Assurance Ministries, which are a group of ex-Adventists, say that really it's a retirement village. So the people who are affluent, which the other blue zone areas are not affluent, so people are affluent, health conscious and doing really, really well tend to migrate there, but they also have the benefit of a massive hospital and so other Seventh-day Adventists who may be there are people who work at the university and the hospital. There's about 9,000 of that 23 that are Seventh-day Adventists. Wow. And they are, some people there are doing very, very well with their health. But there's other confounding factors, the spiritualism, and a great um, thing that I read the other day was they don't want to cheat. In our normal society, if you decide you don't want to eat dessert anymore, you want to reduce your sugar, you're so pressured by people around you because of their guilt. Oh, go on, just have a little bit of this. Just have a little bit of that. At Loma Linda, nobody would say that because everybody wants to hold on to their belief that they are eating the right way because of a religious teaching. So that would also make a huge difference to those people at Loma Linda. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But but they. But not all Seventh-day Adventists are healthy. But that, that's, it's, it's not an original blue zone. It's, it's, just, it's just, and when, if you, you look at the diet of the original blue zones, they were largely based on animal Animal-based foods, animal and protein plants. and healthy fats. And, and, they, ate, and they ate plants. <laughs> and they ate plants. It wasn't highly processed no. food. And I, it, it, I, can, I just can't believe the results that the Adventist groups are coming out with mm. because, A, the, the studies are being done to prove something. Yeah. They, they, mm. Their definitions are fluid there's this a big paper that's come out recently from the American Society of Lifestyle Medicine about mm-hmm. clinical, uh, sorry, American College, um, for the guidelines for diabetes management, and talk about a fluid document. Whoa! They're like, 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 they couldn't. They looked for consensus statements, not literature. They only found sixty out of one hundred and thirty-one that sort of fitted their narrative, and that was only after they changed eleven of them. Wow! And then. And then they couldn't prove that they could put diabetes into remission for six months. So then they changed the definition of remission of diabetes to three months. They talk about it in the paper. It's just, it's, I said to Belinda, this is a smoke and mirrors paper, but without any mirrors because they're not reflecting on it. And it's so non-transparent. It's just all smoke. It is, it's just, but the trouble is that document then gets adopted by the American Endocrinological Society as being a mm. you know, that plant-based is a method of putting re- diabetes into remission. I, I just I can't find the papers that actually say that. 
And diabetes, um, you know, the best papers that have been coming out plant-based saying that you can reduce the HbA1c, the control of diabetes, by 0.3%. That 0.3% is nothing. Nothing. And it's Compared to not, the people you've been interviewing. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not remission, you know. It's like you, you know, and this is, but nonetheless, they, they keep saying it. They keep publishing Oh, they published it in their own journal, by the way. Yeah, so it's not, and peer review was one of their members actually reviewing what the president of the organisation had written. So, Convenient. Yeah, so the American College of Lifestyle Medicine began as the American Christian, uh, sorry, American Christian Lifestyle Medicine. And it was, sorry, the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine, it was called CALM at the beginning at Loma Linda University in 2003. It became the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2004 with exactly the same people, the same nine um, key people that are devout Seventh-day Adventists at that thing. But the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has grown and grown. It's, it's now running exams around the world. And what I say to the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine here is that no matter, even if you don't have people on your board who are Seventh-day Adventists, when people regular people say Gary was to sign up for the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, which has a seemingly endless benevolent agenda. And it does sound really, really good. But you don't realise until you get in there that their plant-based discussions are actually heading towards veganism. They are demonising animal proteins and fats. They've got people in the cereal industry and everyone else. But when these people sign up to be part of that society, they do the exams with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and these exams were written by the founder and key people in the Seventh-day Adventist church and also, unfortunately, key people in Coca-Cola. So the idea is for health professionals, and I'm talking all health professionals, including exercise physiologists, dietitians, you know, um, med- medical doctors and nurses, dietitians, everybody, the idea is for them to write prescriptions for lifestyle medicine and exercise as medicine, and these this idea is that people will eat less, move more, sorry, move more, eat less, meat. And if you don't understand that that messaging is coming from religious ideology and vested interests, it's it's really hard to <clears throat> to challenge that, and you get in, caught up in that whole society and these societies everywhere, all around the world. But the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is the hub. It is the basis of this whole lifestyle medicine branding, and that's where it's come from. And, and with, with mm. a huge, because they've got this enormous amount of money behind them, because we're talking the cereal mm. industry, the soy, the alternate meat industries, their basis, which can then push this down the pathway of medical education to get lifestyle medicine into the universities. How many universities? I think in it's the in U- eight universities in the US at the moment, and they're pushing to get it into medical education here in Australia. And I'm jumping up and down trying to go, um, excuse me, but even the society says, but we are not involved with this. You know, we're not the Seventh Day Adventist Church at, in our society because, interestingly, the church has a very small footprint here in Australia. They have this massive food industry. They have a university college and they have maybe three or four smaller private hospitals. That's all. You've got 84 hospitals in the US owned by the church, plus now the Blue Zones, which is able to get into so many more cultures. 1,400 
communities. 1,400 communities plus they want to run the Blue Zones across all of the West Coast. And those communities paid... One of them, I found a document saying $6.5 million for them to be accredited as a Blue Zone. (laughs) So that's your local mayor. (laughs) I'm sorry, your local mayor has just signed up to make your community into a Blue Zone and probably paid... $6.5 million. May have paid... (laughs) Six and a half million dollars to, to a church organization so that you can take <clears> up <throat> a fake blue zone mentality. So, you know, they've got cash coming in hand over foot and they've been convincing regulators, administrators, politicians, um, and, and, and at a local level, it sounds great. Okay. Lifestyle medicine, what a great. Term, you know, and if you go on, they've got everything on lifestyle medicine. If you look up all the different Google searches, dot com, dot net, dot. This was a long time ago because they've got other ones. They've got the other ones now. They owned all of them. Wow. The only one they don't have is one we have. (laughs) (laughs) But. Lifestyle Medicine Wiki. I don't know. What, I don't know what we're going to do with it, but I, thought, I, I finally got. Oh, I found one that don't have. That's great. But, but they, they literally have. You know, this media saturation and political saturation, and they say right through to American Dietary Guideline Committee, World Health right Organization, the government. U, government, United Nations, politicians. Yeah. Um, you know. Can we change it all? No. Can we make more people aware? Yes. And the mere fact that we're having this conversation with you and that, you, you know, you've got Jane's book there, the great, yes. the great plant-based con, it means that more and more people are getting aware Yeah. And it, because this, this, there's only one exit strategy here and that's to be led by the people. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's really important just to say we're not anti-religion. <laughs> it might sound like it. We're not anti-religion. We're not anti-vegan. We're pro-choice. And it wasn't until I realised that our choice, Gary's choice to improve his own health and the health of his patients was being taken away by a group that was protecting their ideology. And, and I'm very much about the corporate church when I talk about this. Not many individuals, most individuals right. within any church religion believe what they're being told, and they love the community that they're involved in. So I'm not talking about individuals necessarily. Um, This is about the corporatization of a church that is profiting off, I would say, band-aiding sick care because they are absolutely strict and have such a strong structure around this promotion of a diet that isn't necessarily about health unless you eat all of their highly processed, fortified, supplemented foods. And they are taking it into third world countries. And as Gary mentioned before, when they talked about this um, medical evangelism as the right arm of the church and their health reform message being the entering wedge, I've found multiple documents stating they're able to get into places like China that won't necessarily allow Christianity in there they take it in as health. They say, we'll open a hospital. We'll open this. We'll help educate people. And that is the concern that they do truly use it as an entering wedge. They will use it as an entering wedge to the secular community. We'll do a cooking class with you. We'll We'll, do this. And then people are brought into that. They don't talk about the church for a while. Like it's, it's a bit insidious 
how a lot of the work is done because this is a total member involvement. That's what the actual general conference have called it. Every single member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to use their health reform message as an entering wedge to society in whatever way they can do it. And certainly as a medical community, that's their belief, that's their commission, and they are purpose-driven. And until they encourage enough people to give up meat, their belief is there's no point Jesus coming back to earth because in the Garden of Eden we won't be eating meat. And so he's not going to waste his time from what I've been reading in coming back until they get enough people to convert and certainly themselves. If you read some of Ellen G. White's early writings, she says, no person who is teaching health, no minister will eat meat, will have it on their table. No meat, milk, eggs, didn't talk about, sorry, didn't talk about eggs and butter as strictly, but in time that will happen. And that's again, why Harry Miller and these other guys, the Adventist Health Studies, have to prove that you can actually be healthy without those things. So they have to create the foods to provide that. And that's, it's like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> and, sounds like a Trojan <laughs> horse, getting that into a place where you're not able to go and then, and then the deception comes later. If, if, yeah. if there are any Chinese <laughs> government agricultural ministers listening to this podcast... <laughs> Uh, my understanding is that the western regions of China are now being opened up for cereal, grain, and soy production. You know, not not the traditional uh, um, fermented soys and things like this. It's commercial. This yeah. is and so westernized. So there goes your um, soil. Your soil is going to be toast. Mm. Uh, it's uh, and that's you know we haven't even touched about soil and uh, touched on soil and environment today. We talk about that and other things, but unless we look after the soil, we're not going to get decent food. If you don't get decent food, you're not going to get decent health. That's right. And it's, this is a real crossroads. But again, I think if you're privileged enough to actually have access to good food, and I, I, my dietary guidelines have really simplified. I've, I've, I've rewritten the dietary guidelines <laughs> for the world in one sentence. Which is my my message. It happens to be low carb, healthy fat. I, I'd rather we we don't talk about healthy fat rather than high fat. I know in the intro you said I like that high fat, but I think it's about low carb, healthy fat. So my dietary guidelines for the world are: eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on your environment and culture, reducing added sugar and processed food. Now, if you think about that, that is the ancestral diet. That's the evolutionary diet. That's taking into account where you live, what you can supply, supporting your local mm. farmer, not having huge transport miles on your food, eating by the seasons, you know, eating up in the summer the fruits so that you can store them as fat in the winter. It, you know, we shouldn't be eating, we shouldn't be bananas. eating highly processed food. <laughs> in Tasmania in winter. That's right. <laughs> I say, people say bananas are good for you. I said, okay, come to Tasmania and find me the banana plantation, Okay. <laughs> Good luck. You know, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're 42 degrees south. You know, you try and find banana plantations 42 degrees north. I mean, they're not many. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Well, okay, so that was going to be my final question for you is somebody listening to this, maybe this is the first time they've heard any of this. They think it sounds absolutely bonkers, but they, <laughs> they're they in. Like they want to do something about this. I, mm -hmm. I think all of us can agree that, you know, the system is probably not going to change. The governments are not all of a sudden going to change. These things take, you know, 
enormous amounts of power and money to kind of overthrow, and they're very well established at this point. For for an individual, and I know you just gave us some really good recommendations. Is that what you would say to most people? Is like this is what you can do as an individual? Yes, absolutely. Well, it, I'm a great believer in the power of the word, you know, and that not in the spiritual, but literally. One person hears about this and then they can tell another person, oh, you wouldn't believe what I just heard. Okay. <laughs> and go, so go along and try and look and try and disprove it. You know, Belinda's lectures, my lectures are on YouTube. Um, her work's on the I Support Gary website, the new one, um, BelindaFecky.com. is coming <laughs> only because my godson said to me that, Belinda, I'm a I'm a doctor. I'm not going to look on I Love Gary for my medical well, I information. No, he said, I'm not going to look on I Love Gary for my um, medical education. I can't recommend any of this to um, anyone else. So I thought I'll, I support Gary was started to help clear Gary's name, to challenge the guidelines, to challenge the medical board. Um, so now I think I'm I'm getting enough confidence to actually create a website that is talking more about my research rather than just saying it's because of where it's come from. I've done well, nearly eight years now and it's pretty amazing. I think amazing. the talks, <clears throat> the YouTube access, we're both on Twitter but um, Belinda's on Facebook, Belinda Fetke, no fructose. She took over my... Yeah, she took over his page. It's not really no fructose anymore. It was Gary Fetke, no fructose, but because the medical board wouldn't let me speak about it, we literally just I literally just drew a line through <laughs> Gary and just wrote Belinda in handwriting across <laughs> the, the image, which the medical board didn't like because I literally just extended my middle finger to them. Yeah, because the message is too important. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, a few messengers are going to go by the wayside. You know, we're, we're lucky we're still 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 standing, but it's hard work. Um, I know of people who have just felt too pressured to continue on. You know, pressure, and um, so our our role is to support those people who want to run with the message, whether or not they run for you know a, a meter or they run for a mile. It doesn't matter. We we, we just because. You know, as as I've, I've regularly quoted, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I always love it when someone quotes that back to me because I know <laughs> I started that ten years ago. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You literally you can't see the health benefits for you. You can't you can't unsee the health benefits for yourself, your family. Yeah. And and I, you know, I started this by testing my testing it on my surgical team. <laughs> you know, we did it <laughs> myself. Belinda can tell the story that if I came home and threw one more thing out of the pantry, <laughs> I mean, we're not having this, we're not having this, we're not having this. She came, I came home one day and she said, if you take bacon out of the fridge, you're out. <laughs> Smart. So the bacon Smart. stayed. Yeah, I think it's about empowering people and just, just knowing that there's a growing tribe that are here to support and to me, that's very, very exciting moving forward. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I love that message. I love the word empowering. And I think we can do a lot more of that. And I just, I look at your story and, you know, some of the times that I get really bummed out and get feeling really pessimistic that the thing is not turning around fast enough. Mm -hmm. I look at people like you and and I, I do think about the people well justified, I would add, that, that 
didn't carry the message forward because it was too difficult or they weren't making an income. And I get it. I, I, I totally understand. And I wouldn't fault <laughs> yeah, exactly. anybody for doing that. And you guys fought. You guys fought the good fight. And I would point out that not only did you clear up your name, Gary, but this really paves the way for a lot of people and medical practitioners to continue this work. And that's going to have global impact. It's incredible. Yep. It was really important that my name was cleared. Tim Noakes's name was cleared. Yep. Anna Dahlquist's name was cleared because that literally meant for those for, for those countries, but beyond that, this can't be challenged because this is just science. I call it this is um, this is applied biochemistry, applied physiology. This is living biochemistry, living physiology. This. We're not designed, we didn't evolve to be eating highly processed food. And guess what? We're paying the price for it now. So let's get back to what our ancestral diet was or, you know, what Ken Berry will call the proper human diet. (laughs) We're all all saying the same thing. We're just using different ways of getting that that message across. And it's it's just you can you can make up you can argue as much as you want I, you know I'll listen to your argument but you're going to fail on the science yep yep i totally and that- agree I totally agree. And you guys have done just an amazing job getting that science out to people. And we're just so grateful for that work. If you don't mind one more time, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with your work? Well, I think if you find most of our lectures where it gives its whole story is on YouTube. So Gary Fetke, Belinda Fetke, I'm on uh, Twitter as fructose. No, Belinda's. I'm not really doing a lot of Twitter at the moment. I tend to focus more on Facebook and LinkedIn. Cool. Um, there to social media. I got so caught up. I don't know, like everybody else in COVID, I I decided family had to prioritise a little bit. So I we, pulled back. We, a we had eight in the house. That's here great. <clears throat> not well, a little while isn't a year, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Grandchildren, everything. So wow. so I just went. You know what? I'm pulling back. But I think I've got a very established group of people on LinkedIn and on Facebook. Two quite different groups but you know that's they're the main areas that i would use and the i support gary website at the moment awesome. which i will let you know when it becomes belinda fetke but yeah i just think they're they're probably the places but also we've been interviewed by lots of people and thank you so much casey i'm sorry we didn't get to meet bethany but how fantastic to meet you and congratulations on all the work that you're doing and connecting all these people. So and where, where's her excuse note? <laughs> <laughs> she needs an excuse note. Uh, yeah, she had clients she had to take today. She does really amazing body work with people and gets people out of pain. So she had to step up to that. But I, I'm just so, so grateful for both of you. I'm so grateful for everything that you guys are doing um, and that you would take the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you and all of your work. So thank you so very much for everything you do. And thank you so much for appearing on our show today. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Casey. Bye. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
Thank you again so very much for continuing to listen to and support Boundless Body Radio. This little passion project that we started almost two years ago just continues to steadily grow. We are reaching more people than ever, and we keep receiving so many inspirational and amazing messages from you. We see it in all the reviews that we get, and we really appreciate that. So thank you so very much for that. We love understanding which guests you really connect with and which content you really appreciate the most. We wanted to take a second also to give a huge shout out to our amazing guests. We love the people that we've been able to host and all their amazing content in these awesome conversations. And we have to say in the pipeline, we already have lots of great episodes that will be coming to you soon and lots of great guests. Some will be new to the show and others will be familiar to you if you have been listening to our show for a while. So look forward to that on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. We are still running a lot of the same offers that we have been running for the last few months. These offers are complimentary, and we've really had a great time connecting with people all over the world who are taking advantage of these. So if you go to our website, which again is myboundlessbody.com, on the main page, you'll find a button that says book now. You can book either a functional movement screen, which is a movement screening tool used to evaluate movement patterns to optimize mobility, fitness, and injury prevention, We do that virtually through Zoom with a bit of creativity. You can book that session, which takes about 30 minutes and is complimentary. You can also see another booking for a 30 minute consultation with us where we can really chat about anything that you like. We can talk about fitness or nutrition or help you come up with a plan for you to be able to reach your goals. As always, it really helps us grow if you leave us a rating and review. So please be sure to go to Apple, leave us a five-star rating and review. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.